Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. This is Josh. Welcome. And uh, thank you for joining us tonight. I just realized that... uh, it's actually been now 16 years, pretty much, to this day since when I took over uh, as teacher at New York Dharma Punks. And uh, over the course of 16 years, the bulk of which were spent actually teaching in person. And the uh, podcast itself didn't start until about four years after I started teaching. And over the course of these 16 years, I have taught when uh, the same week my mom died, the same week my dad died, during blizzards, during uh, hurricanes, literally. (laughs) This year, managed to teach twice while I had COVID-19. Just wanted to acknowledge you who hear these ramblings on contemporary psychology, Buddhist psychology, and early Buddhist practices, how much it means to me. And with that, it seems nice that tonight's talk will be on love. Love. We hear songs, greeting cards. Uh, notable cultural figures and writers extolling its value as an indispensable foundation for healing and positive social affiliations. The constant extolling of love as being central to the human endeavor, whether it's from the Beatles singing, All You Need Is Love, classic psychologists talking about the role of love as a developmental marker of growth invites us to define what the word love actually means. Even in Buddhism, love has an enormous import in the metta practice, which is very foundational. So, of course, love can be defined as brotherly, or unconditional, or erotic love. I went on uh, some sites and just looked for definitions of love, and I found so many, so much variance to the point where when we say we're in love, or we love something, or we love someone, it's almost impossible to know given the variance of meanings attributed to this word, what it is we're actually saying. Love is sometimes referred to as obsessional, an inescapably strong feeling for someone when we can't do anything without thinking about that person. Or love can provide a sense of completion, feeling our life would be empty, without another person, without uh, our favorite pet or our favorite uh, person around. Love can be sacrificial. 
entails uh, that we would even risk our lives to save theirs, that we would give them the last piece of food if we were starving and uh, so forth. Love can be defined as beneficial towards growth. It changes us for the better. Uh, in the Bible and Corinthians, it defines love as patient, kind, never envious, bo never boastful, never conceited, never rude nor selfish, uh, something like never quick to take offense or keep score. So, and it makes us capable of offering forgiveness and tolerance beyond what is ordinarily available for us. Love is also said in song lyrics to last forever or more moderately in other writings to at least last through periods of stress, disagreement, loss of at times physical attraction. So love is enduring. So um, a wide array of different meanings. And so I thought the challenge would be to provide a little bit of a more coherent understanding of what it is we talk about when we talk about love and practices that can help us broaden our capacity to experience love as it is, as we'll find out, exceedingly beneficial. So before we talk about the positive definitions, it's always worthwhile because the Buddha and so many famous psychologists start out by talking about what things aren't to rule things out, some things out as to not being what love is. Those of us who grew up in unhealthy attachment dynamics or in caregiving environments that failed to be emotionally secure can wind up with some distorted beliefs about what love is. For example, the emotionally distant, unavailable parent might define love for the child as someone who swoops in out of the blue and solves problems by spending money, doesn't express empathy when things go awry, but is emotionally incapable of understanding or mirroring the child. And so these people might grow up to chase attachment and love from people who are emotionally distant, but are capable of uh, providing some sense of support through money or uh, having achieved some degree of success. Helicopter parents constantly monitoring their children, overprotective, controlling, might produce individuals who feel defined by how their partners are perceived, might vacillate in adult life between controlling and emotionally distant behaviors, might at times be incapable of empathy or providing reliable, soothing attention. Parents who fail to model growth and independence may produce children who feel at home in what's called fused relationships, where each person has an incomplete sense of self, where they're prone to what I call bisolating arrangements, which mean two people who isolate together. And there was, of course, a lot of it during the pandemic. Bisolating arrangements stifle growth. 
partners become obsessed with each other and can no longer grow or individuate without anxiety. Emotionally dysregulated parents may produce avoidant children or more likely caregivers, children who learn to put aside their needs and focus on caregiving at the expense of their own growth and, and disclosing their own internal states. So they might mistake love with uh, a constant state of taking care of others rather than the mutual reciprocal bonding based on talking about our experiences, our unmet needs, our yearnings, our desires, our, our feelings, and so forth. So where do we start when we want to define what love is? Well, my favorite place personally would be based on the work of the famous attachment psychologists that I've spent so many, so many years studying along with uh, Buddhist suttas. I also have a real love in my heart for neuropsychology and attachment psychology. So some of the attachment psychologists I've read over the years, like Bowlby Ainsworth, Mary Main, Dan Brown of Harvard, Alan Shore, the great uh, Omri Gilead over at Kansas University, Patricia Crittenden and Mario McEwenser. Um, these are some of my faves, uh, Wallen, um, who's a psychotherapist. But all of these point to similar definitions of love. And uh, as defined by what produces a secure attachment environment in childhood, they believe provides love or security throughout life. So in other words, the same characteristics that foster growth and confidence uh, and well-being in a child is exactly the same kind of love that fosters growth, well-being, and happiness in ourselves as adults. So what are those? One, we to be loved is to experience that someone is reliably available, but not engulfing. In other words, we don't feel overly limited or monitored, but when we seek someone's attention, they're responsive. The couple psychologist Gottman notes that couples that maintain their bonds over the years, when they express bids for attention, there's a 75 to 80% chance that their partner will stop what they're doing and pay attention. So the foundations of love must be a reliable sense of proximity, i.e. availability, and attention that is met or granted when we seek some form of acknowledgement. But again, it's not an engulfing over monitor sense that when we don't want attention, that we still have someone focusing on us rather than on their own areas of growth. Love is definitely emotionally understanding. Everyone from Heinz Koha to Shore to, and his right brain to right brain theories of love 
show that the, one of the foundations of love is someone who's empathetic. And empathy is not just feeling what another, what our partner is feeling or what our friend is feeling or what our child is feeling or what, even having a sense of what uh, my cat or my, if I had a dog, what it might be feeling, but it's in some way mirroring back that emotional state that we sense in another with our own nonverbal cues, maybe facial expressions. If a child is upset, we go, oh, you're upset. And we might, if our, if our partner in life is sad, inescapably without performing it, we might start to express some form of mutual emotional discomfort. So without doubt, there's an emotionally mirroring quality, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Love is soothing when you are in distress or, or in an emotionally dysregulated state, extremely uh, frightened or angry or frustrated by events in life. The, your partner will uh, somehow alleviate that state. We'll talk about that. And love is appreciative of creativity, appreciative of exploration. Um, it encourages growth in our partners. So it's not in any way stifling. And it's even though we might not understand why our, part, our partners feel something, or our friends feel something is important, we still enjoy the fact that they are going for it, they're learning new skills, they're embracing opportunities, there's a sense of growth. So let's talk a little bit more about this empathy and soothing bit. Uh, a bunch of highly regarded psychologists, Thomas Amini, uh, wrote a book called A General Theory of Love, which was a very big deal in uh, like I, when it came out, they noted that love is primarily what's called emotionally co-regulating. And what does that mean? Love is a bonding behavior that produces a state where each other's midbrains lock up uh, and, and not consciously, but unconsciously, we start to lower our states of activation. Our proximity and nonverbal gazes affect each other's autonomic nervous states. We begin to feel less pain, studies show, when we're with our partner, when we feel seen. We breathe slower, we move slower, our muscles start to relax, our vagus nerve activates. We'll talk about why that's important. And we feel safe. So when we're with our partner, um, we switch from what's known as a sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, uh, fawning behaviors, back to rest and digest states. And for their definition of love, that is the primary utility of our bonds, is to co-regulate so that together we can 
in each other's presence, we can relax and attain our highest sense of self, which is born of security and ease. This is shown um, quite elegantly by neuroscientists at Princeton who asked lovers, friendly colleagues, and strangers to talk while wearing fMRI uh, scans. And they found that lovers' interactions activated regions associated with mirror neurons, where we start to actually feel, and that's empathy, what each other is feeling in the inferior parietal lobe. So our brains, the brains of lovers, as opposed to the brains of friendly colleagues and strangers, synchronized, showing similar regions of activation. And thus, hence, we begin to emotionally co-regulate as well. There's even some studies that show over time, uh, people in long-term relationships begin to develop the same frown or smile lines because they emotionally mirror each other's state due to the mirror neurons. And that activates in the parietal lobe, the similar facial expressions. Porges, a great neurologist, believes that this, uh, or notes how important the vagal nerve is. The vagal nerve is a the 10th nerve that goes from the brainstem to the front of the throat, and then it heads in two directions, up to the, the cranial nerves and down to the heart and the stomach. The uh, vagal nerve is uh, essentially regulates so many things in the body, including uh, how fast we, re we um, restore after periods of stress. When your vagal nerve is active, your breathing rate and heart rate, heartbeats start to become in sync. Um, it means your body can relax. It means your parasympathetic nervous system is switched on, so you're no longer in fight or flight. The muscles in the front of your body are relaxed, especially your abdomen. When your vagal muscle isn't active, your heart rate soars, digestion stops, cortisol is far more likely to be secreted. That's a stress hormone. And so the vagal nerve plays a deeply important role in experiencing bonding and love. In fact, as studies have shown that depressed, anxious, and angry individuals show very little vagus nerve activity as opposed to people who are experiencing love. And there's actually a way, as we'll talk about in our, as we go to the meditation, to activate the vagal nerve and to stimulate this feeling of bondedness and togetherness. But before we talk about that, I also like to note a couple of other uh, insights into love. Uh, many psychologists believe that as opposed to attraction and desire, which is all about dopamine nor, nor epinephrine, excuse me, 
and in lust, things like testosterone, estrogen, etc. Love is distinctive for the secretion of oxytocin, which is some people even call that the cuddle or the bonding uh, neuropeptide. It's neuropeptide simply means it's a large molecule, a protein. Um, oxytocin, when it's present, uh, relaxes us, reduces our fears. And if you give someone an oxytocin spray, they're likely to become almost 50% more trusting, 50% more likely to disclose confidential information that they don't disclose to friends. Uh, it makes us far more sensitive to all the interpersonal cues uh, that are happening with others. So we're less likely to get lost in thought or to prepare what we're going to say. When we're in love, oxytocin means we're going to be far more externally focused on our partner's mouth, eyes, and facial expressions. Oxytocin also downmodulates the amygdala, the fight, flight, freeze, uh, also survival center of the midbrain. Uh, amygdala does so much. It also helps regulate emotions, but it makes us far less reactive. Due to oxytocin, uh, psychologists like the great Barbara Fredrickson, who's, uh, I think, amazing, and her work, Love 2.0, is a wonderful resource. Um, she notes that there are four distinct cues that the provide us with dependable signs that people are in love. And by in love, they're regulating their emotions, they're in sync in their brains, their vagal nerve is active and down and allowing them to relax and breathe slower. And uh, they're also experiencing far greater synaptic presence of oxytocin rather than dopamine and norepinephrine. So what are these four nonverbal cues that people are in love? Well, one, people who are in love tend to get this smile at each other a lot. Well, I think that's pretty obvious, but uh, that's cue number one. Cue number two, people who are in love use open, friendly hand gestures when they're referring to their partner. They'll go like this, They'll do something that literally in their gesture is very safe and soft and enveloping when they refer to the person they love. People who are not in love are more likely to point or do some kind of dismissive gesture with their hands if they use any hand gesture at all. Three partners lean towards each other when they connect, as opposed to people who are not in love, but friendly, who are less likely to lean towards each other's and are less likely to open up their chest cavities. When people are in love, they tend to lean forward and open up their chest cavities towards each other, opening up, literally opening up their hearts to each other. And four, uh, people who are, who are in love, not to each other a lot, almost twice as much as people who are just friendly. So those four cues are smiling at each other, open, hand, open friendly 
uh, gestures with hands, leaning in towards each other when they connect and nodding in synchrony. And lastly, before we go into talking about meditation and love, um, Fredrickson is also famous for what's called the broaden and build theory of positive emotions. So it was well understood by evolutionary psychologists why we had negative emotions, what the purpose of, evolu of negative emotions, fear, its purpose is to lead to impulses to flee dangerous situations. Fight is an emotion that, you know, I mean, well, anger, it leads to fighting or pushing back, confronting uh, transgression or injustice to maintain our tribal status. So anger and fear have clear survival roles, as well as grief, processing the loss of an attachment figure so that we would eventually be able to make new bonds. But what was the purpose of positive emotions? Well, Fredrickson notes that positive emotions like joy, like curiosity, and uh, uh, contentment, and especially love, don't limit our behavioral repertoires, like fight, anger, fear, uh, grief, sadness, just lead to very specific behaviors. They limit our thoughts to repetitive, intrusive ideas that just repeat. But according to Fredrickson, positive emotions are responsive. They encourage us to consider multiple actions before we act. Joy may spark an urge to dance, but we might sing, we might laugh, we might play, we might express joy in countless ways. On the other hand, the way we express fear is very limited to essentially running away or just becoming very small. Likewise, curiosity urges us to explore, to stop, to take in information, to ask questions and so forth. Contentment encourages us to relax or to savor sensations or to connect and talk about our experiences. And love, according to Fredrickson, sparks a recurring impulse where we encourage uh, us to explore and act in as many different ways, to consider as many different opportunities and choices to broaden our behaviors rather than to limit our behaviors to the ingrained survival emotion. So love is essentially the highest emotional state that supports growth and exploration. So um, one of the fascinating things in Fredrickson's work is that she studied the Buddhist practice of metta, unconditional love and friendliness. And she found that when people practice the metta, phrases in the metta meditation, that there are significant, significant um, 
uh, milestones that are reached and supporting the ability to bond positively with others and to experience the same positive attributes of love, including uh, the secretion of oxytocin, making us more likely to uh, connect with others in a positive way, stimulates our vagus nerve. So we, we're healthier. We can relax better, sleep better, digest better. We can actually, uh, it makes us less prone down the line to heart attacks and so forth. All of this from this very, very fundamentally easy to practice Buddhist meditation called metta. Metta is simply uh, wishing each other well. It doesn't mean that we're, if we're practicing metta for people we don't like very much, it doesn't mean that we hope they get off the hook for something bad they're doing, but it's simply a wishing that no one suffer, that people be emotionally uh, happy and healthy. And the understanding is the happier people are, the better people act in general. So the phrases in the meditation uh, in the traditional are, may you be happy, healthy, may you live with ease. Uh, uh, or Sabe Sata Suki Hantu in the original Buddhist uh, words is what is very often chanted. Um, but other phrases work as well. May I be accepted by myself just as I am. May or I love you keep going. These are why you hold an image of yourself or others in your mind. So choose whatever phrase that feels right for you. It's simply a phrase of wishing oneself and others well-being. And now we're going to practice love in our meditation. So thank you for listening and find a comfortable seated position. And uh, once again, all of my work is entirely supported only by donations. I'm not funded by anything or anyone. Uh, so if you'd like to support uh, my Buddhist pastoral work, uh, my teaching, it, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC or the PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks NYC website. So thank you for that. Find a really comfortable seated position and either closing your eyes or resting your eyes on a pleasant or neutral image in your environment, something that's not busy a plant, a window, whatever feels like an object or space you can gaze upon, but not get lost following too much information. And we're just going to start by paying attention to the breath as love has been shown to 
activate the vagal nerve, especially regulating how the breath and heart rate synchronize together. So we're going to actually start by helping this process along by changing the way we breathe slightly, encouraging full in-breaths, but especially long exhalations. So if you breathe in to a count of three, you might breathe out to a count of five. Or if you breathe out, breathe into four, one, two, three, four, then you breathe out to six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Allow a pause in between the end of the exhalation and the inhalation. And as the great uh, Theravadan Buddhist note, uh, belly breathing is especially conducive to relaxing and feeling safe. So if you like, imagine that you're pulling the breath into the belly, which is expanding like a balloon all the way up to the chest. And then as you breathe out, the chest slowly collapses and then the, the belly no longer expands, it releases. And there's no sense that we're pushing out the breath at all. There's no sense that we're forcing it out. It's the breath, the out breath, the exhalation is being released. So breathing in, the air is being gently pulled in by the belly and then the breath spreads up to the chest, which expands. And then as we breathe out very slowly, the chest recedes, and the energy moves down the front of the body and the belly then releases. So it could be a little bit like breathing in is like paddling out on a surfboard into the ocean. You're doing that a little quicker, trying to get that wave that reaches its crest. And then as you get on the wave, I suppose you try to ride it as long as you can. So what we're doing is we're riding the sensations of ease and release as the breath energy is released from first the chest and then the belly. So the in-breath moves up and the out-breath moves down the front of the body. And for those of you who don't really want to work with the breath, that's fine. Just 
Open your awareness to the sounds around you. Paying attention as much to the silence as to the moment sounds arise and pass. Try not to picture what's creating the sounds. If it's a car horn, don't visualize a car or a dog barking, don't visualize a dog. Just hear the sound, pay attention as it arises and passes and then pay attention to if silence follows it and then another sound that appears, staying present, not adding any story or image to any sound that appears. So for a while, we're going to sit in silence. Most importantly, if you struggle with either being with the breath or being with sounds, just relax and sit comfortably. Try to land in your life right now, just feeling whatever is going on internally. Don't put any don't add any judgment if it's a challenge. Don't worry if you get tired and sleepy. Just try to, to add no judgment. And if you do wind up getting caught up in a thought about events that either previously happened or may happen in the future, just... When you realize you've been pulled away from the present, just relax all the muscles and open up to any of the sensations around you. You'll find that returning to the present is a refuge. It's rewarding. That ultimately we're much happier being awake, present to our lives, rather than lost in thoughts about events that are no longer happening.
So as I noted in the talk to experience some of the many myriad benefits of love, including the feelings of security and safety, ease of being, the soothing qualities and the states of the feeling of connection, the relaxing of the body, the synchronizing of empathy. Let's practice some metta or unconditional love. So bring to mind an image of someone that you admire, that you may aspire to or might in some way present your highest sense of self, what we could aspire to. This could be a figure, living or dead. Often in my practice, I used images of people like James Baldwin, creative, insightful, courageous individuals that uh, I looked up to could be teachers, could be people we've known or have never met. But just bring to mind an image of someone who expresses what we consider to be the most esteemable virtues and hold a image of them that expresses these qualities and we can just repeat, may you be happy, peaceful. May you live with or be with ease, even if the individual is no longer with us, wishing whatever of them remains happiness, peacefulness, ease of being. Or if you'd like to use the Pali phrase of the Buddhist time, Sabe Sata Suki Hantu.
And now bring to mind someone that you or some being, animal, person, that you care for deeply. Who you cherish and look forward to connecting with or felt close to. Holding a soft, welcoming image of them in your mind. May you be happy, peaceful, may you live with ease. And if you like, we can stimulate the vagus nerve so central to the experience of love by putting a hand resting on our heart center. Sabe sata suki hantu. You'd like we can now bring to mind a friend, a new friend, or someone else that we enjoy connecting with. Someone that we might either rely on or someone that we simply, when we're with them, we feel slightly more relaxed, comfortable, holding their image in our mind's eye, image of them, if it's possible, smiling. May you be happy, peaceful, may you live with ease. bringing to mind 
someone that we don't know, that we might see casually on our journey through the city or place we live, someone we might be an acquaintance, Just practice sending out positive regards, positive emotions towards this individual. May you be happy, peaceful, may you live with ease. Now, many people, when they practice metta, as well as many teachers, will suggest at this time to visualize someone who's challenging, not a friend, someone who may be irritating or inconvenient in life, and wishing them well-being. But given the context of tonight's talk and topic, what I'd like to instead ask is that you bring to mind an image of yourself, either today as you might appear in the mirror or an image representative of an earlier stage of your development when you needed love and support. And visualizing yourself May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease. So thank you for your practice and for listening to tonight's talk.